Welcome to Managing Marketing, a weekly podcast where we discuss the issues and opportunities facing marketing, media, and advertising with industry thought leaders and practitioners. Today, I'm sitting down again with Ashton Bishop, the Chief Executive at Step Change. Welcome, Ashton. Thank you, Darren. Well, clearly, you are a thought leader because this is your third returning visit to uh, Managing Marketing. You actually were here uh, back in October 2015 with Jeff Cooper talking about the importance of strategy. Then uh, we met again had a conversation in May 2016 where we discussed the disruptive organisational changes. Now uh, we're talking about customer centricity Mm. and uh, you've been observing some changes, I believe. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. Just in terms of context, Darren, uh, this little, I mean, you have to take any statistic, 73% of statistics are made up on the spot, but this one's a Gartner stat that says 89% of businesses now compete on customer experience as a battleground versus 36% that cited it 10 years ago. So it's a longitudinal stat. Mm. And the piece that sits underneath that is that when it comes to that competition front of customer experience, 80% of companies believe they deliver a super customer experience where only 8% of customers agree. So there's some huge gaps there, aren't there? Huge gaps. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because almost all of the conversations we hear today, especially from traditional brand building focused marketers, is that customer experience is essential, an essential pillar or essential platform possibly for building brands in, in this century. Yeah. And, and, I, and I think it's interesting when we come back to this concept of building brands and all the Field and Burnett work that says, you know, what's the horizon that a brand wants to build or return into? Because for six months, if you just want a result, then it's activation, promotion. But if you really want to build brand, it is a longitudinal play. Mm. And it comes back to that definition of a brand. And it's amazing how many communication specialists are coming out with specialist marketing comms degrees. And you say, what's a brand? And what does it do? Brand sets up positive expectations that are then self-fulfilling. And I think when we go back to that, we say, well, what is the role to one set up, but then to deliver on it? And I think that's a big part of the gap to get the different parts of the organisation to speak together and to coordinate that value delivery of what's the expectation and then delivering against it. Well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Because fundamentally the world has changed. You know, the the sort of the genesis of the brand was the post-Second World War. It was a media boom. You know, television was dominant. Mm. And that if you had the money, you could actually build brands almost exclusively through communication. Mm. You know, it was the golden era of advertising right through until the end of the century. Mm. Advertising was the way of building it. But certainly there are now brands you can almost uh, cite off the top of your head that have built brand saliency without actually relying heavily on advertising. Yeah, I, I think it was, I remember my my first uh, Apple iPhone, which was Apple iPhone 2, and I was effectively an unpaid demo uh, brand ambassador (laughs) as I went through and demoed the phone and demoed the phone and demoed the phone. I think there's that that real shift when people talk about 
sort of social media and the prevalence of social media, I think a lot of it's still face-to-face and a lot of it comes on that attribute of the brand that's, I mean, there's the three parts of the value of getting good value, then owning the product, but that social signaling piece. And I think you know, the way we connect and interact with each other and the signaling value of brands is probably as important as ever. Mm. And there's also been the fundamental shift in trust, hasn't there? Oh, yeah. Yeah, and and that going from an era where people trusted brands, they trusted media, they trusted communications, mm. to be honest, now people really have retracted back to they trust their own experience and they trust the recommendation of people that they trust. Mm. So it's quite interesting how the balance is tilted there and why uh, customer experience and taking a customer-centric approach to your customer's experience is so important. Yeah, and I think it's interesting around the whole gush around net promoter score and, you know, that people say that, you know, a, a detractor will tell 10 times as many per people as a promoter and a, a 10 will tell three times as many people as a nine. And, and that really comes around the social proof aspect. And I think in a post-COVID world... Uh, a lot of businesses are now having to not just maintain a relationship online, they're having to build a relationship online. And traditionally, online was a good place to maintain and a poor place to build. But then right next to your value proposition, this social proof becomes absolutely inseparable <laughs> mm. uh, and needed. So all of the things like the Google reviews, the positive reviews, the ability to make sure you're very easy not just to buy but to use and to recommend that sort of being that holy trinity so to speak and it's also interesting how yeah you know, we've seen and i don't want to go into naming them but we've seen some really big brand campaigns have been launched and the customer experience is almost completely out of step with the promise yeah that that advertising brings forward it's almost like you know they're still uh, relating to the idea of building the brand on chest beating and yeah. grandstanding and yet haven't done the work to actually make sure that they fulfil on it. And there's nothing worse, is there? Yeah, no, there was that big, I mean, if you remember the, the breakup campaign got a lot of headlines uh, going way back is that first thing. It's a big promise. Do you deliver? And I think that accountability and transparency around if you make a big prob- promise, you better be able to deliver against that and you will be held accountable. And those mm. customer experiences and the voices of the customer, it's not just the media that's controlling now, the customer uh, will surface uh, those complaints. Now, I just want to uh, get some clarity from you so that you know we, we're both talking about the same thing. When we talk about customer centricity mm. and customer experience, What's the sort of breadth of the definition of that from your perspective? Yeah, so we actually took this on as a bit of a project uh, late 2019 for Step Change. So we're quite fortunate as we get to work across a lot of different categories and sectors. We used to say that we had a, uh, a maternity ward and a funeral home, so we used to be birth to burial, then we got a fertility clinic. So we're literally fertility to funeral, but probably about <laughs> a 1,000 businesses over the last decade. And there was a little pocket of financial services. And then when the Royal Commission rolled through, so the Hain Royal Commission, they just got inverted. And we saw sector after sector and category after category get challenged with this customer-centric transformation. And they found out that they 
couldn't define it. <laughs> there was a lot of issues around what did being customer-centric mean versus customer experience. Mm. And we needed to go back and actually have a recalibration on the definition. So we held a series of uh, seminars and workshops and did some research and got everything from uh, you know, industry pundits from Choice Magazine through to media commentators through to CEOs who'd successfully uh, engaged in customer-led transformations to the ones who had been part of unsuccessful uh, customer that transformations. That would have been fascinating. It was brilliant. And, oh. and, that, and that really led us, so we said, let's not go to the textbooks. Let's go to the real-life war stories. So we held sort of three uh, symposium uh, events, did some research and brought it all together. And what we, what we distilled it down to was effectively there were three forces that were driving the need for reappraisal. The first one was... Uh, customers' demands in in their expectations changing. Mm -hmm. So that's that sort of Kano model of saying that customer expectations aren't set. And across category, uh, you know, the moment somebody gets drunk and vomits on their iPhone and drops it in the toilet, fishes it out, turns up the next day, and a genius goes, oh, I'm sorry, sir, uh, we don't have that model. I've upgraded you and here's all your contacts and no receipt, no worries. So they do that sort of Disneyland is that why you did Mickey Mouse then? Hi there. Welcome to Disneyland. I'm your Apple genius. So it very much is that Disneyland experience where you've got no accountability as a customer. You don't need to have the receipt. You don't need to have done the right thing. You get treated like a genius. Now, when you've got the multi-billion dollar support of Apple, you can afford to do that. But that expectation then gets translated across categories. And we get that sort of uber micro moments of frustration now if we have to wait for a minute longer for the thing to load, for the transaction to process, we get frustrated. So there's been a move with customers' expectations demanding change. There's been the innovators driving change. We've seen unicorn after unicorn do the Uber of or the platform business in particular categories. Now, not only do they drive the expectations, they make promises that they often can't fulfill. <laughs> and we've seen the whole WeWork and many other unicorns uh, promise the world and deliver DAPTO. Sorry if any listeners in DAPTO uh, are there, but you, you kind of get the, the sentiment of that there's an overpromise there where they're not playing on the quarterly earnings, they're doing the Bezos trick of quarter of a century earnings. Mm. And businesses that don't just require to deliver a customer experience, but deliver it at a certain level of commercial reality can't compete. So there's the innovators or, or the unicorn challenge. And then you've got the regulators who just roll into town and saying, you will focus on customers now. And certainly in the fin services that was very much at the front because there'd just been anyone who got a ticket to the Hain front row seats to a Hain Royal Commission, it could cost you $7 million just, just for the call up, let alone if you'd done anything wrong, the cost of actually appearing was, was off the charts. And, uh, Absolutely. And having the representation. Yeah, so, uh, so those were three of the forces. Now, look, I, you know, I completely get the uh, the customers' expectations mm. are changing and demanding change. Yeah. You know, the more technology is innovating their experience mm. in the world, the more they're saying, "Well, why why can't you do this?" Yeah. Rather than, "Oh, thank you for doing that." You know, it's it's they're always wanting wanting more because it's what's in the offering. Yeah. Um, I totally get the innovators as well. I think the biggest challenge for innovators is that they're still being driven by, uh, you know, uh, private equity and, and uh, venture capital yes. who still want the return on that investment. Mm. 
and they'll play a longer game to a certain point, but there has to be an underlying commercial arrangement in yeah. it. You can't be so customer-centric without actually having a way to support it. You know, businesses are not charities. Yeah, well, they, they play sort of capital leapfrog. <laughs> exactly, yeah. The interesting one for me is the regulators. Yes. Because we have seen, you know, neoliberalism has largely said, allow the market to regulate itself. Yes. You know, and that in a marketplace, doing the right thing by your customers has to be the bottom line because that is how you'll maximise profits. Yeah. I, do you think some of this is a sort of wake-up that the, the pure open market, the idea of pure neoliberal capitalism doesn't always lead to great customer experiences and there needs to be a certain amount of regulation and guidance to actually keep people's focus on customers. Because, you know, we did see in the Royal Commission into the financial sector, mm. you know, fees being charged to dead people. You know, we saw uh, advice being given that was not in the best interests of customers, but in the best interests of the people giving the advice. You know, all of these things uh, work against the idea of a market would be putting the customer centre. Yeah, I think it's really interesting in Australia on the the approach of, you know, with any market, there's there's the bell curve, right, where most of the people do right stuff most of the time, but then there's the outliers and sometimes the outliers get all the attention. I don't have the answer from a right level of regulation point of view. I just think it's interesting where in Australia probably when people have done dumb things or stupid things, it seems less that the perpetrator gets punished or called out and more we go for lowest common denominator where regulations and processes come in that then make everybody play down to that level or complexity and compliance goes up and then you get the unintended consequences where you then solve the problem of customer disclosure with 92-page product disclosure statements that nobody's going to read. Read anyway. That's what I mean. So it's not really... I mean, that led to the, the broader conversation, getting back to your point before, around customer experience versus customer-centric transitions yeah. of the, the experience being how the customer experiences each individual touch point versus the organisational engine that's delivering that now but planning for an even better experience in the future. So there'd be the two dimensions of the customer experience being what the customer experience is now as the combination of all the touch points in communications and experience through the journey, but customer centricity being the engine that it delivers that now, that now but and... has a vision yeah. for in, in, in the future. And you can't just ask customers what they want. Like If you ask customers what they really wanted, they'd probably say, leave me alone and stop researching, right? And, and Steve Jobs said that. Yeah. You know, you've got to inspire people. Yeah. You can't ask them what they want. Uh, Henry Ford said they'd want faster horses. Yeah, if, if yeah. I asked people what they wanted, I would have built a faster horse. And yeah. all the Gretzky quote that the job users saying, I don't skate to where the puck is, I skate to where it's going to be. Indeed. And I think that's where the sort of shifts that we're seeing of organisations who are successfully going from the old world of brand or comms through to the integrated world uh, sort of changes things up. So Ashton, there's a industry uh, quote that says, you know, you've got to be uh, factory in 
rather than factory out. Yeah. You know, that the idea that, you know, if you're manufacturing something, it's not about what you can manufacture. Yeah. You have to go step outside and say, what is it that I need you to manufacture yeah. for me? So how that's an incredibly difficult thing for an organization to do mm. when they're in their whole purpose, their whole reason for existence is to make things. Yeah. Well for instance. Now I'm talking there in product, but it also applies to services as well. Yeah, there's uh there's the interesting book where you go back that's called The Goal that says actually an organization's purpose is to make money. But how do you do that? You don't focus on making money, you focus on delivering customer value. I think that's where we, we came back to this redefinition of what customer centricity means. And interesting that you, you pulled out factory there, Darren, is we go back to Toyichi Ono and Edward Deming in the 1950s around looking at the transformation in value creation that Toyota went through with Lean Principles actually applies today, like sound principles across the generations, across the decades. And we actually drew on that heavily when we looked at customer centricity as the deep adoption of seeing the person behind the moniker customer. Because mm -hmm. whether it's client, consumer, customer, we need to see that there's a person behind there and attend to the whole person. It's probably the first bit. The second bit is maximising the value they receive. And the key word in there is value, not stuff they receive, mm. but value they receive, which is a qualitative piece. And then the most prevalent piece at the moment, we're removing anything that reduces their ease of interaction. Right. And, and I think, you know, where we're seeing competition go down the wrong path is where businesses are mimicking other businesses in delivering more and more and more, and the customer's getting less and less and less value. So that sort of inverse relationship there. It was interesting working with a couple of the banks because uh, your point there about, you know, just copying everyone else. Yeah. One of the issues one of the banks had was that they had so many offers for largely the same credit card. You know, I think there was over 50 different offers for a credit card. And so it became incredibly complex to communicate these. How can you, from a, an advertising point of view, communicate so many different uh, offers. Yeah. And I, and I just naively asked the question, why have you got all these? Oh, well, they're all the ones that we had to match our competitors. <laughs> you know, they were offering these, so we had to offer it too. So we just bundled them into, you know, creating all of these options. Yeah. And you know, it's interesting because consumers time and again don't actually mean they want choice. They just want the version that's right for them. Yeah, I love the work of uh, Shana Anger and uh, Dan Gilbert around this, where they actually talk about information being a barrier to action and this optimization of choice is that more choices actually often leads to less satisfaction and less action. And they modeled the, uh, I think it's 401k in, in the United States. And they basically went for every additional 10 uh, options that you get, you get less and less people taking it up because mm. it just becomes too complex too hard and that's where traditional incumbents have been sort of fighting each other and then a disruptor just comes in whoosh, straight underneath. I mean we even saw that in a traditional category with Aldi around their ability to simplify choice and get a really good outcome not just on value but also on trust. Mm. It's interesting. So what are the what are the real shifts that you've noticed? Yeah okay. Um, in customer centricity because certainly you know everyone is walking around no one picked well some people picked but no one picked the, or predicted the pandemic yeah you know 
And there is so much being written at the moment about what the new normal is going to be. Now, clearly this is uh, the work that you did was just prior to this, but I imagine from your perspective you would see these trends continuing or even accelerating. Absolutely. We did our new normal talk four or five weeks ago and then when everyone had a new normal talk, we've just rebadged that uh, 2024 in effect. But what we've found and what we've seen is that less than COVID being particular generation of a new way of everything. Like there's some particular things around sort of hand sanitization and safe spacing and those sorts of things, which are particular. But a lot of it's the underlying accelerators of what we were seeing, of the rise of platform businesses, the need for customer centricity being more prevalent than ever. And I, I get to work with a lot of CEO groups they're actually not booking the COVID new normal talk. They're booking this talk around customer centricity because they're already looking to see when the cycle moves, uh, a lot of sectors and categories have just washed out uh, poor uh, poor competitors. Mm. So it's the Warren Buffett quote that says, it's only when the tide goes out do you really see who's swimming with no clothes on. And a lot of, uh, a lot of businesses have been caught. Yeah. And that's for the ones that have stood and are standing, they're seeing that as an opportunity but they also know that they're going to need to turn the wheel around delivering customer value. And that's really what this comes down to. So yeah, we've got we've got it down to sort of seven shifts that we've observed organizations that are scaling well and seeing brand reputation measures rise and customer value measures rise are thinking about things differently. And I think that's probably, depending on your sector, depending on your size, it comes down to the intention. So the sort of seven shifts uh, that we could yeah, talk, yeah, I'd love to go through talk them, through yeah, yeah, and get a sense of what the, what the implications are. Yeah, so it says with any change, it starts with an intention, and that's really when we talked about the customer experience, but then the customer centric nature of the organisation. It says as an organisation, we should have this corporate intelligence focused at the higher level, because then that all cascades down. So it's not command and control directing but leaders inspiring better outcomes. So the first one here is, you know, in the past it was understanding customers to sell to them. Mm-hmm. And we've probably all seen the, the old cowboy sales team go, poof, 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 you know, the ring the bell sort of. And we talked about the financial sector and the focus being on the wrong place. It was ringing the bell now for the organisation. It wasn't ringing the bell for the customer. <laughs> and that's that first shift of, Understanding the customer to sell to them versus understanding the customer to serve them. And there's a fundamental shift there in philosophy because selling is largely transactional. You know, there is a point where the sale occurs, whereas service is an ongoing relationship. So it's interesting that that is, for me, a really important component of that is to start thinking about your relationship with your customer is not just to hit that point in time of, I've made the sale, you know, you you shoot them up because, hey, we've made the sale, you know, or ring the bell and, and put the docket up to, to say I'm winning the sales game, but actually see it as an ongoing relationship. Uh, I love that, Darren. I, I think your transactional is probably the word. I think you, you've, you've called that out uh, around that being the mindset. It's a transactional mindset versus a relationship mindset. And the sale question says, 
did I sell the customer and maximize the business's value versus the servitude and the relationship piece says, did the customer get the right thing? Did they get value out of it and how are they responding? Mm. And, and it's a fundamentally different, different outlook. Well, that's a great start. Yeah. What's next? <laughs> uh, the second one is understanding what customers want mm-hmm. versus understanding what they value. And, and it's crazy. I still see research come through where uh, researchers are asking customers, out of 10, how important is this to you? This, 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 versus saying prioritising out of these, which is most important. So the difference between absolute ranking where everything's important versus prioritization, that forces a values question. Because when we buy, I mean, we really often do it emotively, emotional decision, rational justification. And there's only a few things that really get called out. The rest of it's just supporting noise. Mm -hmm. So an organization needs to be very clear, not just what the customer's saying, I want, I want, I want, What's the evidence that I value it? Where I've told you this is more important than that or I've shown you it's valuable by putting my hand in my pocket and presenting. It's interesting, isn't it? Because throughout this whole uh, the COVID lockdown, there's been so much what looks like very quick research that mm. says customers demand brands oh. to make a stand. <laughs> customers demand brands to be leaders. Cust- <laughs> yeah, it's it's all of the, you know, and then they put numbers on it yeah. as if that somehow validates <laughs> that this is absolute. Yeah. You know, it just drives me crazy. It, it does. Uh, I mean, a lot of the the polls. I was on a webinar yesterday, and we ran a poll, and we went ninety uh, percent of people uh, agree this. And that tells you a lot about the people who are on this webinar and, yeah. and not much and not much else. Not much else. But it's interesting around that sort of value. If, if you think around, you know, what people value from brands, and we go back to first principles, transactional value. So people want to, when they, when they hand over the money, they want to feel like they're getting a good deal. Yeah. The second thing is there's the, the usage or acquisition value of actually using it. And then there's that, there's that social signaling and all three... Uh, are, are really valuable. Uh, so the next one here is additional ways to serve. And that's that sort of looking at competitors where you get, end up with your 50 credit card different offers of this and this and this versus removing any points of friction. And, you know, it goes back to, you know, I think it was some Gartner research again that, you know, 73% of features and functions on SaaS platforms are used by less than 5% of the customers. So they spend a huge amount of development on just creating noise and nonsense and getting in the way. And I think we've seen that really play out. The businesses who've polished up that nugget or jewel of value and just made it very easy to buy, use and recommend are winning. Yeah. And, you know, you see that not just in technology, but even in just the ease of of using things. Mm. I think there was a great sketch or maybe it was in a film, you know, of going in and going, I'd like a ham sandwich. What sort of bread would you like? You know, Uh, I'll have a whole meal. Uh, uh, Do you want butter or or margarine or mayonnaise? Uh, Butter, you know, and by the time you went through all the choices, you didn't want a ham sandwich anymore. Yeah, I think it's a Monty Python or something. <clears throat> so but what's next? Uh, the next one is capturing data to uh, report versus looking at data to predict. And there's the work out of Singularity University that says actually when you do business strategy now, you should start with the word data in the middle of the page 
and you should write two questions underneath it. Can I get the data and can I use the data? Because people are not your greatest asset. Your factory services and brands are potentially your greatest asset. It's the data that sits underneath that might be long-term the way that you deliver value into the future. See, I, I love that because for me the metaphor is do I drive along looking in the rearview mirror yeah. or am I looking ahead and want the GPS to tell me what's up yeah. in the road ahead? It's a great example, Darren, and that's the, the lag metrics that a lot of businesses are still looking at and still doing mm. and they're getting fancier and fancier in the, the, the graphs and the depictions of where we are and they're less uh, paying less attention to where they're going. And it's, it's that predictive nature of you know, thinking of, yeah, you know, the the Apple and the Google recommendation engine. What's your equivalent of that? How are you using that data to better predict what the customers want? Because the customers don't know, hmm. and they don't care. They want you to do your job. <laughs> and there is so much behavioural data around, and behaviour is actually you know being proven to be the best predictor of future needs. Yeah, based on you know what people what people are doing now will give you great insights into what they'll need tomorrow. Absolutely. And sort of the more they do certain behaviours, the more likely they're able to build patterns and the more uh, patterns they build, the more habits they occur. I mean, and that's loyalty. I mean, the, the holy grail yes. of, 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 of brand is loyalty. So understanding those behaviours that leads to the patterns, that leads to the habits, that's where certainly marketers uh, need to put their focus and drive. Uh, the next one here was looking at customer journeys for segments and personas. And I won't tell you the, uh, the, the name of uh, the business. Uh, we don't want to name and shame, kiss and tell. But uh, over a decade ago, I was working for a, uh, a very large Australian brand that was using the mosaic segmentation. And they highlighted seven core mosaic segments. And we would do these elaborate campaigns and all the research to 17 different nuances, and then they do one TV ad and buy people 18 to 64, right? <laughs> uh, I think uh, Simon Rutherford said, you know, 18 to 64, that's not a, a target audience, it's a family reunion. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, yeah it, it really is. Yeah, a segmentation is only as useful as your ability to identify that person, serve them a message, and really get a feedback loop uh, around it to see whether they've taken that action or behaviour. So and what's the intention then? If we, if you're yeah. saying we're moving away from segments, what's the intention? Uh, to really see every customer as, a, as an individual. and and Wow. Yeah, well, I, I think, you know, you go uh, Prince Charles and Ozzy Osbourne, you know, both white, rich English males, couldn't be more different in the way that they... Uh, they engage. But the challenge here is to say, how can we use technology to let people create their own individual experiences via their behaviours, mm. right? And a lot of businesses still haven't made the move to using recommendation engines to help them guide journeys or very simple marketing automation systems that let people guide guide journeys based on the individual's choices because people don't fit neatly into a box. And this whole persona game, I think, sometimes shrouds the diversity and the fact that a behaviour will trump uh, a profile. But Ashton, uh, you know, we saw Gartner come out and say people are going to give up on personalisation yeah. because they're just not getting their heads around it. You know, in trying to treat people as individuals, yeah. they're actually falling into the traps of alienating people yeah. because either the data's incomplete or it's been uh, misinterpreted. Yeah. You're not 
talking so much as personalization of advertising, it's more personalization of the experience. Absolutely. Allowing people to navigate themselves rather than making some assumptions about people and hope, you know, potentially and often getting it hope, hopelessly wrong. Absolutely. It goes back to this second point around the definition of, uh, sorry, the first piece, seeing the person behind the moniker customer. Yeah. Your customer is not the persona. Hi, I'm Jane. I live in Darlinghurst. Like all of that yeah. digital persona stuff, a lot of it's made up, a lot of it's inaccurate, and a lot of it hides the richness of your individual customers. I'm not talking about customization, right? Yeah. A lot of businesses. Or personalization. Yeah, it, well, I, I, I call that customization okay. is that if businesses are trying to tailor the products, <laughs> uh, they're scaling complexity. I'm talking about the personalization of being able to serve up different things, maybe around messaging, that feeling of personalization, those nice touches. And whether it's customer directed or intelligence directed, at least seeing that that's the future. Because I remember Amazon, you know, was mm. seen as the, you know, held up as being a mm. fine uh, example of using data to, be, to do the customer experience. I just wish, because they're still, you know, my boys are three now mm. and they're still serving up things that I bought on Amazon three years ago as if they haven't grown up. That yeah. this idea that, and me as a customer has evolved. Yeah. You know, I'm no longer interested in, you know, <laughs> infant food and and, uh, toddler, you know, and little nappies. And, and, and I think that there's a new book out called uh, Bazonomics, which actually looks at the, the economics driven by Jeff Bezos. And... And I think, you know, certainly Amazon Web Services being the engine that drove the profit that's mm. fueled the Amazon wheel, they're looking for different customer advantage in probably pricing. So I think they've taken some of their focus off data to make sure that their supply chain and delivery and, you know, the negative cash flow of most other retail businesses, Amazon has positive days cash flows, like mm. crazy different. Don't be confused, though, that they will get smarter and smarter around that and they have viewed you as an individual. Mm. So you will be served. Like you, you have a look at what Siri's probably less than 10 years old at the moment. She's going to get smarter and smarter and she's always listening. Yeah. Uh, you know, the ambient processing of, uh, hey, Google, I need this, is going to get better and better. So the infrastructure's in place even though the experience isn't perfect. Mm. And I think we just need to disconnect or de decouple those things because this is intentional. And yep. you're absolutely right, Darren, is that trying to be the, the Amazon of the, uh, the early noughties around leading that, probably too much for some businesses. But we're seeing the quality of the Netflix recommendation engine get better and better. We're mm. seeing the quality of Well, the, it's a learning exercise. It's learning, right? Yeah, machine and, learning. And that's that's the loop. Okay. So next. Oh, you'll love this one, Darren. The role of the marketing team to the beating heart of the whole organisation. Love it. Yeah. It's one of my big bugbears yeah. is that so often marketing is being constrained to be the comms department, you know, the yeah. promotions department. And yet they're also seen as the, the ones that should be driving the customer experience. You cannot drive customer experience with one lever called comms. So that's brilliant. What, what's, when you're doing these presentations and having these conversations, do you find much uh, traction or pushback? Oh, we, uh, we see a lot of uh, flags being planted. When we ran uh, one of the, uh, the symposiums around this, we had someone who'd been firsthand at the Levi thousand day customer transformation. 
-hmm. And during that time, they managed to halve the value of the organization from circa about $7 billion through to about $3.5 billion. And they had 200 people on the organizational transformation team and five people in new product development. Wow. So in the in the customer-centric transition, they put all of those massive teams and resources and they forgot about the customers interested in the product. And I think, you know, when this gets lost, it gets lost in the marketing being the colored pencils department versus really building a case of where you always start, Darren, around knowing your numbers, seeing what the strategy aligns with, and then marketing delivering on business objectives that really needs to be a customer objective. And what I like is that you say the beating heart of the mm. organisation, because the other thing is it's not about marketing controlling things. It's about marketing being the sort of the setting the pulse yeah. for the whole organisation. You know that operations, retail, you know, call centres, sales teams are not being controlled by marketing, but marketing is setting a pulse yes. that everyone dances to or everyone's you know, working with. Yeah, and I guess that was the promise of the chief customer officer. Uh, when sort of the role emerged and was 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 meant to, and in Tony Shea's book, Delivering Happiness, he says that you know if you're still seeing sales and marketing and customer experiences three separate functions, you've already lost. Yeah. The whole purpose of the organisation is to deliver value uh, in the form of happiness <laughs> in that moment. And what I love about that is your happiness. That's the value of, of the, the experience uh, that we have. And then, uh, so what, uh, we've done six so far. You yeah. said there's seven. What's the and, last one? And it's probably the most challenging and probably the most pertinent at the moment, Darren, is what's your time horizon? You know, we talked a little bit about Field and Bennett that says if you're looking for results now, <laughs> the hard work in getting all the parts of the organisation to align in that customer flywheel effect, probably not right for you. The organisations that, like the Amazons that do the, you know, the, the five to seven year plans that really look to see where value is going to be and look at that customer lifetime value hmm. is where it's at. And all business exists between cost to acquire a customer and customer lifetime value. And there's still so many organisations that can't tell you what those two numbers are and and agree to play within those uh, those posts. And I've had these conversations with CFOs where I've pointed out that the last day of the financial year, effectively from a financial perspective, all the customers die and are resurrected the next day as zombies <laughs> because they say to me, I can't book lifetime value of customer. And I said, it's not about you booking it. It's about having a management process that can go over your and you know financial yeah. years. I love but that. But you can still draw a line. Just don't stop everything. It does mean, though, the budgeting has to be yes. more than year on year. Yeah, it you does. You need to start projecting into the second and third year yeah. so that you can keep that con continuum and, and that relationship happening and evolving. Yeah, I, I love the, it was, the, I think Ford did the thousand day variable budgeting method where they actually looked at maintaining a consistency as well as then investing in new things to enrich the experience. But you're, you're absolutely right. And when we did a framework, uh, it's too much detail for today, that sits underneath this, the first bit was aligning your time horizons to make sure that the business is really committed for this the long term and the budgets are going to line up because 
customers don't fit neatly into they live for a financial year. And, yeah. and that comes back to that. You've got to see them as people and you've got to be prepared to deliver value to them over that lifetime. I remember a, uh, a bedding retailer who said to me, my biggest problem is people only buy a bed once every eight years on average. And I have to be in the market to be there when they're ready to buy a bed so that they buy it from me. And I said, but if you sell them a bed and you know they're going to upgrade every eight years, why don't you just keep a track of that? And he, he looked at me like, oh, my God, <laughs> I've never thought of that. I was like, okay. <laughs> but For a fraction of what he'd been spending all year round on advertising just to be top of mind. Yeah. He could have taken that very successful business. Absolutely. But was treated, you know, going back to the point about, you know, starting to think of this long-term relationship. I think it was your first one. Yeah. Rather than just selling a bed, serve them over time. And that's, uh, and then you, and that's that personalization thing, right? Mm. So that, that point there, it answers that, see them as an individual. Yeah. Right. So they're a person. So if you're going to speak to them in eight years through that bed cycle, what do you need to do? You need to remind them when to flip their bed, mm. right? Because people go, when did I flip it, right? Well, and he also said pillows and, and exactly uh, quilts right. and things like that have to be changed more often. He sold all those things as well. Yeah. So, you know, there was lots of opportunities for having an on, yeah. ongoing. And now, this, this is great stuff. I mean, uh, how can people access this? You know, oh, I mean, you're doing you're doing uh, talks and presentations and things. Yeah, so we, we run it as a as a bit of a masterclass. Uh, and as I said, there's a framework that sits behind it, Darren, where we, we, we got the first-hand examples of the people who'd made it, but most interestingly, the people who hadn't made it and where it had got stuck and fallen over. And we integrated or synthesised what we could learn from all, all the the wins and the losses into in, into a uh, sort of 12-step framework. And we step that through and say, depending on where your organisation's at, what are the things that you need to do to coordinate it? So, I mean, for uh, for your, your bed guy there, you gave him the asset and the strategy. He then needed to line up the organisation. So well, what does that mean around designing a journey? If they're a person, we can't get their email address because that's going to change within eight years. We need their phone number and, and all of those extra things. So, yeah, we do it as a as a masterclass. There's also a landing page. I'm sure you'll be able to pass that on if people want to get into that. Absolutely. Hey, uh, Ashton, it's great catching up. I'm, uh, you know, no wonder this is your third uh, return <laughs> visit to managing marketing and really appreciate you spending the time. This is terrific thinking and uh, I really hope people... Uh, Take uh, take the time to look into it and hopefully work with you to uh, apply it to their own businesses. Thanks so much, Darren. Um, last question before you go. Yeah. In all of the uh, of those symposiums, yeah. what's the worst business case study you saw? Mm-hmm.